Hello, Rachel. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I am. I'm feeling like I'm in a dream within a dream. I feel like I'm in this matrix of some sort of simulation. Dare I say? How are you feeling? Full of milk and cookies. Mmm, yum yum, as Commander Nandi from Star Trek Discovery would say to that notion. Rachel, we are the Yum Yum Podcast. This is our show, Yum Yum Five, in which we are rewatching episodes of Babylon Five from a spoilerific perspective. That's right, we are rewatching. So that does mean spoilers, people. If you have not watched the show, especially. In context with this episode, we're going to be busting this wide open. Go elsewhere. Actually, watch the show. Where、oh, that's it. You've been told. You've been told. We're yum yum because of the iconic line from Star Trek Discovery, a show that we used to cover and we will cover in the future, where a character out of nowhere said yum yum. Rachel, I know it's、okay. a tough question because Nagrath is not in this episode, but. Who would say yum yum in this episode? Out of all the characters, who would be saying yum yum here?、Mm. I don't know. You don't? I think I know. It's it's a tough one because we want to say knight too because he said the milk、yeah. and cookies line. But to me, it's Benson.、I、Benson had that energy, and I was just like, ah,、oh, like. I don't know. I feel like he would, but I don't feel like he has occasion to say it. He's death. He, he should have <laughs> got shot and said, "Ah,、oh, yum yum," and then roll over and die.、Uh, that is that.、Mm. But we are joined by someone. We got a guest for this episode, Rachel. We've been having a few guesting things going、okay. on recently,、but、so it's. I a have a, a condition. Okay. This guest has to say his full name when he introduces himself. Middle. Yep. All right, you've been, you've been. <laughs> let's just get into it. We are joined by my fellow podcasting host from my film podcast, Spit and Polish Presents. Bartek is here, people. If you listen to my show, everyone's been clamoring. When's Bartek going to get on the yum yum?、Hmm? When's he going to get the yum yum treatment? Well, I dragged him in. I dragged Bartek in, kicking and screaming. But here he is. Hello, Bartek. I'm. I'm not. Co-host of this show? <laughs> no, 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 no. What's your full name, though? I think you can remember that. Well, well I had a Babylon Five joke to say first, but if you really insist, <laughs> um, my full name is Bartłomiej Piotr Kaspczyk. Yeah, and what was your Bar Babylon Five reference to kick us off with? Okay, um, I'll I'll go back to what I said before. I'm I'm not the co-host. No. My mind is blown, and now there's a hole in it. <laughs> <laughs> It's shattered, and he could die. It's dangerous. It could shatter his mind or kill him. Then he dies. So yeah, we we host Bartek and I. For those who don't know, Spit and Polish presents. We talk about movies. We talk about movies that come recommended. We've done commentary tracks for movies. We've talked about some TV shows occasionally. We've talked about、uh, random movies that we found secondhand, and that's where the B five connection is the strongest, wouldn't you say, Bartek? Oh, oh boy, yes. Do you want to kind of touch upon that for people? <laughs> so, um, we we have a monthly show that we haven't done in a long time due to real life complications called the Mystery Box. Uh, no, no, is... no. The real life complications is COVID, but our show is called the Mystery Box. Just, just so people know. Yes, COVID is the complication.、Mm -hmm. um, I think we can all agree to with that.、Uh, 
Um, so on the mystery box, we find random DVDs. They could be movies. They could be TV shows. They could be mysterious projects. And we've had a real, uh, series of incidences in which Ryan notices Babylon 5 actors mm-hmm. in them. Whether they direct them or star in them or direct and star in them. There's been a few too many. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a running thing where it's like, that guy's in B5. That woman's in B5. This, this prop is in B5. Um, not that level yet, but one day maybe. And you would just kind of roll your eyes and go, oh God, you could just say anyone's in B5 and it will be probably <laughs> true. I wouldn't know for a fact. Ryan, you really tell me this bug guy's in B5? Yeah, well, no, no. Nagrath does appear in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If we ever watch Buffy, I could give that as a fact. But you did do the film version of Buffy. We, he wasn't but... in the film version, he was in the TV show version, but Bartek, that's kind of indicating you didn't have a history uh, when we did the mystery box with Babylon 5, but what's what's your history with it now? Has that changed? Do you have a relationship with it outside of me just going, that person's in Babylon 5, and you look at me like, I don't know what that is. Well, for a long time, that was my only history with it, but uh, you know, because you're such a strong champion of this show, um, you've talked about it a lot, and you've always mentioned that you'd really like me to check it out. And, you know, this year, for the past couple of months, uh, that push has come to shove, and I've watched it all. I just, about a week ago, maybe six days ago, finished season five. So I watched it all. Yeah, so when you first got pushed in by me to watch it... Did you actually know all that much about the show and what was going to be waiting for you, or was it just that I to- like you knew that I liked it? Um, I, I would say that I had a, a stronger idea of like what Star Trek was, which you know it's like oh people on a maybe this is going to be funny for people, but like people on a ship going on missions and you know there's a bunch of intelligent conversations and stuff like that. And because I didn't really have a strong idea of what Babylon 5 was, I just figured, oh, it will be like that, but <laughs> slightly different. So when I watched The Gathering and, like, it was a, you know, space station with a quarter of a million people with, like, essentially, you know, a, a city in space, that actually kind of threw me off. Like, oh, okay, this is this is a lot different. And it was the UN in space, too. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think because you talked a lot about uh, a lot of Franklin episodes... And about how there were all these like moral dilemmas, I thought it was going to be you know kind of similar to what I think Star Trek is like, which yeah, a lot of characters talking to each other, coming up with ideas. So then you saw the show, and it wasn't necessarily that. It's kind of like I don't even. I mean, how would you give a a, a brief description of what Babylon Five is and what it's been to you? Yeah, so so obviously every episode starts with the um the the intro speech. Uh, every season has a different one. And the first one, first season one, really kind of defines it all. It's like, this is humanity's last hope for peace. This is the the mission of the station. Um, and there are, you know, troubles that happen, and we just have to deal with them. And uh, most episodes seem to have a sort of, uh, you know, moral dilemma or sort of message that they really want to hammer home. I remember the first two episodes, you know, kind of hit that really hard where, the first episode was, you know, this kind of political struggle between the Nan and the Centauri and the, everyone else who, you know, has to 
has to deal with that because they're on Babylon 5 as well. Mm. And then the second one kind of got into more religious stuff. Yeah, with the soul. So you have finished it, and this is, in a way, like a week ago. Now you're revisiting Babylon 5 a week later because I wanted you on for an episode, and I wanted you on for the one we'll be talking about, which is episode 8, and the sky... Full of Stars from season one, of course. And I've got the DVD summary right here in front of me because IMDb is too weak while the uh, DVD summaries are perfect. And again, I don't know who wrote these summaries, so I'm going to have to assume it was JMS because he he really had his hands on board for the writing in a lot of ways. Eventually, he would just write every episode of the show. But So let's hear what this has to say and let's think that the guy who wrote this episode wrote this synopsis for the episode. It goes as such, What happened when Sinclair blacked out while leading leading his fighter squad during the fierce Earth-Minbari war? The answer is so vital to an Earth-based supremacist group that it sends two covert knights to cyberlock onto the commander's memories. I gotta say, that has been the most upfront, logical, and coherent summary we've had. Like, that is exactly what this episode is. Like, that didn't seem as silly as previous ones we've done. That is that is the plot. Rachel, what yes. has been your relationship and history with this, with this particular episode? And what did you think about it, revisiting it for now? I remember when I watched it the first time. And I delusionally thought we were going to get some answers. <laughs> and I was wrong. No, just just we got some answers. Delenn was involved. Yeah, but we already kind of knew that. Did we? Now we yeah. have a concrete answer though. We have a concrete answer which just raises more questions. <laughs> really. So, so you remember just being like frustrated cuz you want you wanted the goods. Yeah. In just episode being 8. Like what the what the fuck? <laughs> Um, but I think I was expecting more answers because I knew that Sinclair was o- only in this season. So I was just mm. like, oh, okay, we're going to get maybe not the whole thing, but, but, but enough, but, but we'll get more of a solid idea. And then like, you know, they'll wrap it up in the season finale, yeah. which is not what happened. No, no, it doesn't happen like that. I, of course, as everyone knows, and if you have not listened to the show, this is going to be new for you. People who have, this is an old drum, Bartek, this is an old drum for you too. I own but the I DVD. haven't listened to the show. No, no, but you've heard this in real life. I've had the DVDs, um, but I was stuck with season one for three or four years before seeing <laughs> season two. So I am very familiar with this season. And so I've seen this episode multiple multiple times and I have always taken it for granted because I also knew that Sinclair was only in this one season. And I took it for granted because I liked the aliens because the aliens were different to characters that I've seen before or they were fully formed in a way. While Sinclair, this is like, he's a mystery. Like, this is a part of his character. There's a mystery here. Well, I liked the clarity of Londo's whole tragedy and clownishness, and I liked the explosive charm of Jakar, or I liked uh, the real alienness of Kosh and Delenn. So I was always drawn to those things. So I have always taken this, I always took this episode for granted. Now, in previous rewatches over the last couple of years, 
I have really grown to love Sinclair in particular out of our human characters, and this episode has always been the shining example of what you could do with this character and this actor. And I've 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 understood why people really like this episode. I've never disliked it, I just always took it for granted. And it also took it for granted because we find out his whole story and then it's like well he's not the main character anymore once we find out his whole story so this episode kind of feels like it's important but not as important because of the production reasons of him not being the lead character anymore but re-watching it for this I was gripped I found myself really excited too because this is the first real episode we've covered in which it's all a plot no b plot Every other extra thing in here is all about Sinclair. Ivanova, Garibaldi, Delenn, Franklin. It's all about getting Sinclair. And it's not a distracting B-plot. Like, I liked Mind War, for example. But we had the Catherine Sakai thing. And that's just a B-plot on its own. I really appreciate that this is the first real episode in which it's just one plot. It's really focused. It's focused on lore and character. I think it finds a great balance between the two. Bartek, what was your uh, relationship with this episode when uh, you first watched it and how it landed in the run of episodes that you were watching at the time? Yeah, it's uh, interesting hearing your history there, Ryan, because you mentioned that you were really drawn to the aliens at first. And I remember when I started, uh, one of the big things was that I really enjoyed like the episodes that all the ambassadors were in. Um I think maybe by the time I got to this point, I'd kind of mellowed out a little bit on that, but it definitely, the fact that this is an episode, you know, without Londo, without Kosh, without Jakar, um, it really sticks out when you consider that this is like, you know, a huge main plot episode. Um, and I, I do, eventually when I came across the season, um, I did grow to have Sinclair as my favorite character and I even kind of, you know, carried that on um into season two i think that came a bit after this episode but definitely during this episode i was starting to see you know a lot more to sinclair because i remember when i watched the gathering um you know still trying to find my footing in what i think about this series you know what i think about all the characters and sinclair just seemed to me you know based on my memory as this kind of smiling charming main character guy until kind of near the end of that pilot film mm. and then when the series started it, that sort of continued but not as much and then in this episode where we have you know a, generally an interrogation plot um we are literally diving deep into this character uh diving deep into his insecurities and, uh, you know, like, like both of you have said, we're starting to get some answers and we are start, and it takes quite a while, mm. uh, into this episode for Sinclair to truly, you know, d- take some interest in finding those answers. Because, um, a- as much as, you know, this is an interrogation of our main character who we like and we don't like that this is happening to it. I think literally everyone in real life and in the show other than the Minbari also want the answers. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is what makes the antagonist so interesting because there comes a point where the antagonist has let go of this idea that he betrayed Earth and now he's just invested 
in finding mm. out the answer because he realizes Sinclair doesn't know the answer. And he's like, don't you want to know? And in a way, and he kind also, of flips into being, he's still antagonist, but he mm. kind of flips into being a guide for him. Yeah, because he also realizes, wait, if I can make him want to, to go there, yeah, this is gonna go much easier. Yeah, instead of like hurting him. How was it revisiting this episode, Bartek? I mean, I, you just finished the season, uh, the series. series a week ago. This is one that you watched months ago now, and like you said, Sinclair was a character you you held in your heart for a while, but you had to let him go at some point. And so, what was it like to come back and see? This, and especially in the context of you know where what the answers are. Yeah, um, well, having finished the entire show, I also see this episode as a almost the start of a trilogy of three specific episodes, mm. um, a later one in season two and a later one in season four of like interrogation episodes. And I see a real kind of a development in style of doing these kind of episodes, uh, you know, looking at them in chronological order, where in the very first one, this one, we have a, a, the interrogator character, because all three of these episodes have an interrogator character, who, you know, as menacing as he is, he doesn't seem as uh, capable as the later two ones. You know, mm. he gets stressed out, there's a time pressure going on, um, he relies on technology, uh, for about 75% of, well, you know, 50-75% of the time, he's getting nowhere until near the end where he becomes, like Rachel said, the kind of guide character. Um, and yeah, that was really interesting to see again. Like, this, this interrogation that wasn't as intense as what comes much later, um, but it's handled in a very different way from what they do later on. Go to hell. I don't have to tell you a thing, and I'm betting you don't have a lot of time. Security's probably turning this place upside down looking for me. Assuming you're still on Babylon 5. Assuming we haven't taken you somewhere else. But you're right. You don't have to tell me anything. I think out of the three, though, this is the most direct about exploration of the actual character being interrogated, while the other two, it does feel like... With the Jack the Ripper one, we're actually learning more about him, himself, the interrogator. Mm-hmm. And in the fourth season one, it's about the ideology of Earth yeah. as well. And the conflicting yeah. ideology that Sheridan has with that as well. Mm. Well, here, you don't. Re- the point is, you don't get to know who the interrogator is. We never find out his name. He's just Knight 2. And then he's completely erased personality-wise by the end. And, well, he remembers that... <laughs> I gotta say, it's corny. <laughs> I've never liked it. I have two things I really hate in this episode, and that's one of them, which is we're still stuck in. We could we could still be stuck in here. No, that's too much. You did a bad job there. <laughs> I fucking hate that. And like one of the other things, I mean, there's it's like we need a stinger. Yeah, yeah, we need it. We need it. We need a stinger. And the other one I hate is what, how, and why is there a grey council member waiting in Delenn's room when this incident only took place this morning? Like, like she would have had to call the grey council member to come over. And like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's not enough time for that guy to be there. No, because. So Sinclair was missing for almost a whole day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he was unconscious for a full day. 
Yeah, so oh, if, okay, fine. I'll and, allow Because remember that the Grey Council is just floating around. I just think it's kind of lazy that they have to reinforce with a guy that we don't know by being like, if he finds out, we kill him. And then it's even funnier oh, when we yeah. know what the answer is. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. He's your Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> He's your... I was just like... How could yeah. you could you imagine if they did kill him and they were like, oh, fuck, we killed Valen. What the fuck did we do? <laughs> we don't have Valen anymore. What have we done? We to the ruined time the timeline. Line? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's one of those funny things. There's just some corny things here. Yeah, it's just like okay, well, you're trying to up the stakes. Great. Mm. We never see Delenn's personal shower. He could have always been there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about. One scene that I think is very fascinating upon the rewatch level, but also when a first-time viewer, this is uh, one of the scenes that gives us a deep understanding of Dr. Franklin, because we've had the infection episode, but that didn't give us a really deep understanding of Franklin as a character, yet this uh, conversation he has with Delenn in this episode gave a much deeper understanding. A single scene gave us a deeper understanding than a whole episode we've had before. I want to talk about that scene with uh, Franklin and Delenn. Rachel, what is what is your relation like how do you feel about Dr. Franklin and how did you how do you feel and how did you feel when you kind of heard his backstory here, his background of hitchhiking and kind mm-hmm. of being a you know, uh, a real hippy-dippy doctor who gives it away for free, and then when the <laughs> war came... It ruined everything. It ruined everything, and it tested him. And yeah. He, and he, and he uh, refused. How did? How do you feel about Franklin and all that? I remember it took me a while to warm up to Franklin. Because mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, but what is he doing here? Mm-hmm. Like, it felt almost like they were like, okay, well, we need a doctor character because, you know, we're going to have to do medical stories, so we need mm-hmm. somebody that's in that field. Yeah. And then when we got to this episode, when I was watching it for the first time, I was like, I like this. Yeah. I like that they're still hitchhiking and that he's just trying to live his life and explore and doing it in a way that is entirely for his own curiosity. Yeah. It wasn't like... Because he respects all life. Yeah. It wasn't like I was trying to chart every species in this sector. Yeah, so I could be the best doctor on Earth and get the head job. I was exploring and all the... All that mattered was they were going somewhere that I hadn't been before. Mm. And I was just like, that sounds really cool. I wish that I could do that. I I remember I thought it was an interesting idea that he was a hitchhiking doctor character because I, you know, I, like many people, getting used to the, the interesting little details this show would put in, like the fact that we have homeless, the fact that in this episode we get introduced to like gambling and credits and like why guards can't gamble too much and like the corruption that would happen from that and all these specific little details and something like making him a guy who would just travel from place to place and in a way he would encounter more aliens than someone like Sinclair had done in a lot of ways like he met so many different things and different people along the way from that and I fell in love with Franklin when I heard his war background story because 
I didn't really know much about his convictions and ethics as a doctor character, but when I heard that speech, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a character who's going to get into a lot of head-on-head drama with our other characters because he doesn't have political sides, he doesn't have allegiances, all he cares about is life, which is further explored in a few episodes time from now, a couple of episodes time from now, but it is a consistent character trait for Franklin, is he, you know, he loves his friends, but he is willing to go head-to-head with them if it interferes with his moral code as a doctor, which is to look out for all life. And I, I was wowed by that. And then Delenn during the war, we can all talk about that in a second. But Bart's like, what about you? How was your um, feelings about Franklin early on and uh, this kind of conversation when it popped up? Um, All the details still escape me, but I remember definitely his first two episodes, I was still trying to you know grasp who this character was. And I know that by the end of the season, I had a stronger idea. And rewatching this episode, you know, just now, um, pretty much that entire line he gives, you know, the hitchhiking to the I destroyed the records because it's part of his, you know, code, um, it pretty much 100% matches the character at the end of the show. Yeah. It's like th- that is Franklin. That line is very much Franklin. Like the. The hitchhiking, you can very much compare it to his walkabout plot that comes much later. I love this conversation because we're learning a lot about Franklin, but the fact that Delenn doesn't tell us stuff tells us so much about her. Again, it ties into this early season thing, which I think we take for granted after having watched the entire show that Delenn, at the very beginning of the show, in the first... Is shady as fuck. And throughout the show, they will keep bringing that back to remind us, remember when Delenn was a full Minbari? She was ambiguous, morally grey, outright bad at points. When she becomes hybrid, she's far more of a, a good person. But, you know, you watch this early episode and you're like, that's right, Delenn was kind of leading us up to believe that she's an antagonistic character in some way, shape, or form, or she's got an agenda that we don't understand. And, I, and that is true. That is true. But I love seeing this conversation because her not telling us tells us so much. And the way that she constructs her sentence and her meaning mm. so carefully. Mm-mm, mm, because... We had in a previous episode when she told Lanier not to call her Satai. And it's this very much construction. Like, she's like, I've built this elaborate house of cards. I don't want you to touch it or it'll all collapse. And people realize that it was just a, a house of cards that I've constructed. But like, what do you think about uh, this conversation with Delenn and uh, what we're just talking about here? I was, I'm thinking about Delenn throughout the entire show. And definitely I've noticed that she is a character that likes to keep her secrets. And one of the big differences between Delenn in season one and Delenn further on is that further on, um, more often than not, we, the audience, are actually in on her secrets while other characters don't know them. You know, kind of mm. bit of dramatic yeah. irony there. And it's insane how 
far that carries. Like, there are many moments where she gets caught out having kept a secret and, like, she feels guilty, but then she'll just keep doing it over and over again throughout the show, mm. you know, with good intentions, obviously. Mm. Um, she but always then, has her reasons. Yeah, but then I just realised now that, um, you know, with what I said about us usually being in the know after season two, um, the secret that she alludes to in that conversation is actually one that, we are not privy on for a very long time. We have to wait three more seasons to find out what she was up to during the war. Yeah, and I th- maybe I just missed it, but I-, I felt like before I hit that point, I kind of thought I already knew everything. I-, I guess I didn't consider that there is still just one major secret left, and it was yeah. a very, very big one. And I think you take it for granted, we take it all for granted, because I remember, the, obviously, the thing we're talking about is Dylan being a member of the Great Council was the deciding vote to basically go on a holy war crusade, a genocidal war she, against she the humans. She made the war officially a Yeah, she was, she was the one, and she did it out of anger. Yes, her emotional state is, yeah. Deciding vote and her emotional state. Yes, and I think we she we, wanted we, that right. I think we take it for granted in a lot of ways because we feel like she, well, everything's been explained. We find out why they took Sinclair. We see Sinclair go and go back in time and make the whole entire timeline happen. We we see her relationship with the warrior cast and the religious cast, and we just assume well, she was on the Grey Council. We know that she was involved in the war. We see that she was the one that decided, oh, let's pick him and abduct him. And you just go, okay, well, that was it, right? Of course, that was it. And then season four comes around and says, oh, no, 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 buddy, buddy, buddy. She was in the Grey Council, though. Those guys uh, run the Minbari. They, they, they They did retaliate with genocidal violence. And it then challenges you to be like, well, Delenn was a part of that. Let's actually explore what that would mean. Like... One of our main characters, who at that point in the show is one of the most lovable characters. She's very warm, and see, you know that by the time she's in a romantic relationship with one of our main characters. But in the, if you remember her backstory and her whole thing, she was a ruling member of a government that almost made the human race extinct. And they say, let's explore that. And here you have in season one, a line. From her being like, I don't want to talk about that right now. And it hits all the harder when you rewatch it because you're like, oh, Franklin's here saying, I love life and I was morally right and I didn't want to hurt even you, the enemy. And we know during the war, she wanted to wipe us the fuck out. What about you, Ambassador? What did you do during the war? Topic for another time. Good day, Doctor. So this A-plot, I've always enjoyed the fact that there was just this sci-fi plot of two guys come on the ship and invade our captain's, uh, our commander's mind and do matrixy things in his brain. I love the playing of the effects and the camera moves and the theatrical nature of, like, mm. he pops over here and he pops <laughs> over there and he makes Sinclair imagine this and, hey, Commander, and, like, with Garibaldi, which is... Whenever I think of Garibaldi, I do think of the lines, hey, Commander, a lot, because <laughs> he says it in the exact same way, almost identically the same way each time he I pops I have a similar in. thing, yeah. <laughs> hey, Commander, <laughs> 
I remember I remember when I watched this episode and you were asking me, like, oh, so what do you think about, you know, episodes you just watched? You asked me, oh, what did Garibaldi do in that episode? I'm like, oh, well, he got <laughs> killed and then came back. And Make you it. really, you started laughing at that. It's, it's like, oh, Ryan really likes that. Isn't it funny? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Such a funny thing to write. Like, we could kill him many times if we want. Look, I could do it right now. Boom. And he's like, ah, not my best friend, Michael Garibaldi. And it's also oddly sad because then he does get shot. Yeah, later in the show. Oh, that's something. We we didn't talk about this in the one of our previous discussions, but this is also fun on the rewatch. Garibaldi's right-hand man security guard guy was here in this episode, and he was just like being a normal, generic, no-name security guard guy. And that's fun to see on the rewatch that the guy who would eventually shoot Garibaldi in the back, he has actually been seeded in the earlier episodes. He wasn't just like introduced in one episode. Like he was in several episodes just as just random security guy. How did you feel about seeing that on the rewatch, Bartek? Just just the guy who shot Garibaldi just like walking around being like normal guy. Yeah, it's been so long that I almost forgot about him, but as soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're, you're, he's the initial right-hand man, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the, he's the original Zach Allen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he betrayed him because he's a secret insider Earth guy, which... It's I thought you were going to call him an incel, sorry. He's an, oh, yeah, sorry. I thought the same thing. He's an incel. <laughs> hey, hey, he might be. I like too, though, if we want to postulate for a second, early in season one, the the bigotry and the fanaticism and the nationalism of Earth isn't cohesive. There's so many different groups. There's Home Guard. There's, there's going to later be the stuff that's inside the government. And we even seen this episode that the Home Guard stuff was in the newspaper Garibaldi was reading. But, you you know, you could say this is a story thing, but, you know, if we want to be forgiving, we could say, like, isn't it interesting that the two guys that come on the ship that are Earth supremacists that may or may not have actually come directly from Earth government did not confer with the insider traitor that is Garibaldi's right-hand man, who we know for a fact is an insider, mm-hmm. Earth government's traitor, racist guy. It's like, it's very interesting that early on, the racism and the bigotry and the fear of Earth is so fractured that there's multiple of these groups, all of them that seem to be tied to the government, but they're all differing and conflicting to one another. I think that's rather interesting. Um did we get confirmation on who the knights were working for? No. No. No, it's just like they most likely could have been a covert thing from within the government, but we never got to know. Mm. I, I kind of got the imp- – well, not really the strongest of impressions, but I kind of got a little bit of an impression that um, they were sort of independent-ish because one of the mentions like, you know, I, I'm a patriot and I want to know the truth about this thing. It's It seemed mm. very personal mm. to him. But he also said, said... more of us will come for you, right? Yeah. If I don't find these answers, more people are going to come. But it's interesting. We don't get an answer for him. And I think that works in benefit of this episode's story. Because at the end, it's we're, we're left with some answers, but so many are now on the table. And perhaps you may say there is a hole in our minds as the audience. Oh, a hole in our minds as the and audience. And we're still inside. And we're still inside. 
fuck, that's terrible. <laughs> that should have been in the season five opening. Oh, that should have been in the season five opening, but as the last one. <laughs> Perhaps we're still inside. President Clark is under arrest. Glitches. We're yeah. still inside. <laughs> we're still inside. And some glitches in the Matrix. Yeah, that would have been great. Oh, that should have been the series finale. <laughs> we're still inside. Sinclair wakes up. Oh, I was inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And, and Garibaldi goes on. And Garibaldi with his hair is like, Commander, why were you asleep? No, no, he says, hey, Commander, and then he gets shot. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, oh, no, it's happening again. Commander, there you are. I've been looking all over the place for you. Garibaldi? <laughs> no! No need for alarm. As you said, a simulation only. See? How did this uh, episode land for you as the big Sinclair episode? Because we've had previous episodes in which they've been Sinclair episodes or Sinclair-centric moments, but they're not the big, beefy, here it is, Sinclair. How did this pass for you? It left me wanting more. Yeah? I was like, I want to know what really happened. Mm. I want to know why him, like, because I felt like all of those answers were already in the world. When this episode's happening, there are people who have those answers. Like, the writers know where this is going. Yeah. And I was like, I I, I, want to know what happened. I I, just want to know. And you would never give me any answers. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Like, but... You know, upon the rewatch, what I really appreciate about this one in comparison to the conversation in Infection or the monologue in The Gathering is I really feel like we get the emotion, like full on open door emotional weight of what's going on with Sinclair. While in the other ones, there's plenty of emotions here, but this is the one where I really feel like this is a mentally broken man. He's carrying this guilt all the time. Yes, and I love the way that that comes through in his choices Mm. in this episode and the determination Mm. that he has that's so specific to the way that Sinclair does things of like he's just slowly doing the hand thing yeah so that he can he, break free yeah mm. which is and he a quotes very Admiral different yeah. <laughs> it's a trap it's a very different way that uh, <laughs> that our orange loving commander would do yeah things. sheridan would do things it's, oh, yeah. it is different i like i like that um you know in previous episodes it's like it's kind of hard to describe, but like I, something about seeing Sinclair go through the gambit of all of these emotions. Like he's got tears in his eyes. He's he's angry. Um, he's he's upset with himself. He's 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 stubborn. He doesn't want to know the truth, but at the same time, he needs to know it because these ghosts of the men that he lost. And the fact that the Minbari surrendered is haunting him. And I also like that for our friendly, nice protagonist character, there's something so fucking juicy about him admitting that he has a big, that he had a bigotry and still has one for the Minbari. Yeah. Like, he has to fight within himself 
not to strangle them because these are the guys who massacred yes. all of his friends. And it wasn't a like, uh, oh yeah, I got over it. Was it like it took years mm. to not want to strangle them, let alone like forgive them? Yeah, which we get the sense that he he hasn't done. He hasn't forgiven. Mm. the Minbari as a race for what they did to humanity. And although in the previous speeches that we've heard and the conversations we knew he was a soldier, this episode really hammered in that sensation of, no, no, not was he just a soldier and he was there. Like, he he was there. He was on the line. He was there. Not only was he just going to kill himself, but not only did he see that he was going to die... He saw, as a soldier, right in front of him, the the death of the entire human race, right in front of him, and there was nothing he could do about it. What about you, Bartek? What do you think uh, uh, about all this stuff? And, like, how was it for you on that first watching? Because, like you said, you saw him as, like, this smiley commander guy. And how is it also coming back and re-watching it as well, seeing, like, this these layers that this episode was putting down for, for our main commander? Yeah, like I said, he was, for, you know, part of it, he was resisting the interrogations and Night 2 wasn't really getting anywhere, um, which, you know, on on the one hand, it's like, yeah, the, the main character's fighting alongside it, but then on the other hand, you know, we all want the answers, so we kind of want him to succumb a little. Um, yeah, yeah, a- Angry Sinclair is, is my favourite character, so when he <laughs> started to, you know, fold under the pressure... Um, you know, he was starting to, to woo me there. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, seeing him in, in the flashbacks, just, you know, watching all of his squad mates die, blow up, you know, let's not forget that's what the title is referring to, them blowing yeah. up. All the sky, the sky was full of stars and each one of them, you know, was one was of our one ships of ours, or something. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. one of ours. Yeah. And also, Although the the monologue in the gathering kind of gave us an an understanding of the magnitude of the line, to me, when I think of the immense magnitude of of the conflict that was happening and and the 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 the, the widespread nature of the line, it's from this episode, and it all comes down to Michael O'Hare. And that voice of his and those tears in his eyes and that rigid body of his standing in place and just basically saying, you weren't there. You weren't there. It's easy for you to think that we had a chance. We didn't have one, okay? And I don't know why they surrendered. Go ask them. All I can tell you is I saw that we were going to lose and we were going to lose badly. And I think it's cool, too, that we do get footage of the stuff that you're talking about, Bartek, but just the the supreme magnitude of this conflict is delivered just from Michael O'Hare's performance. You say we could have won, but you weren't there. You didn't see them. When I looked at those ships, I, I didn't just see my death. I saw the death of the whole damn human race. Then why did they surrender? I don't know. Maybe the universe blinked. Maybe God changed his mind. All I know is that we got a second chance. Like, you like angry Sinclair, but what about seeing um, vulnerable Sinclair? What did you, what do you think about, what do you think about that? Because angry Sinclair is fun, but he's very vulnerable here. Like I said, he's got tears in his eyes through a lot, throughout a lot of scenes. I, yeah, vulnerable is an interesting word to use because it's, it, 
I, I always see this kind of strength in this character, you know, w- whatever situation he's in. It's like the, the thing I really love about the anger, you know, well, take away, you know, whatever jokes I was making about like, oh, I'm really drawn to it. Uh, when he gets angry, he is still very much in character. Like he, when he's in a situation where someone is against him, whether it's for a political reason or not, you know, he will, he will play with the letter of the law, even if it goes against the spirit of the law, that kind of mm. thing. Um, but when he gets angry and, you know, just lets loose, he's still talking, you know, complete sense. He's really laying out how he feels. Uh, I'm, I'm especially thinking about, um, which episode was it? It's one that comes a bit later. Mm. Um, I think it's the one where um, the woman from Garibaldi's past, who's like the daughter of someone he knew, is like trying to take over the station. And like for most of it, you know, he's like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm just going to ignore that. But then when, you know, she really starts to assert her authority, you know, he gets angry and just like lays out like, this is why you suck. This is why, you know, what you're doing is wrong. And it's just like, oh, okay, there's like no moral complexity there like like sinclair truly believes uh well not truly believes he's really laying out what this character is Hmm. um and when i see him vulnerable in this episode um it it feels like he is he's not so much uh you know falling victim to this guy's interrogation it's him like kind of being in his own little moment you know being introspective taking ownership of it yeah like he's grabbing this by the horns and he's taking charge of this like you know he's still like like you said rachel he's he's doing two things at the same time he is taking charge of his destiny and finding out what happened but at the same time he's figuring out a way to get out of this interrogation it's that's something very so fucking cool interesting <laughs> the way that He's refusing to be a victim. Yeah. Because, like... Because this event made him a victim. Yeah. And he's refusing to be a victim of Night 2. Yeah. And he's part of the unwillingness to go there, to go to those memories, is that he doesn't want to give in to the bully. Yeah. And also... It's a victimhood complex in a way too. Of he doesn't like the fact that mm, he yeah. that he was made to so be much in this survivor's situation. guilt. Survivor's guilt because in a few episodes' time, he will open up to Garibaldi and say, "Look, I've been holding on to this. I have the pieces. Could you actually help me with this? Because I realize I can't do it on my own, and I shouldn't be doing it on my own. This is bigger than myself." Which is a nice callback to the situation when Garibaldi is having to call Sinclair out for being dangerous and endangering himself Yeah, in the guise of it's for duty. I love Sinclair's uh, as a multitasking commander. Like I said, like you, you get caught up in... If this was a traditionally written story, it would be the interrogator interrogates him... He finds out secrets. They're about to find out the big secret, and then Garibaldi and crew burst through the door and find him. That's how this would traditionally be done. But instead, Sinclair is like, I'll go along with this until I can strike and escape myself. 
isn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to wait to be rescued. Like, I know that they're going to be coming for me, but I'm going to do what I need to do, too. I'm I'm not just going to wait. I'm not going to be passive in this situation. It's, I know it's a very simple thing to say from a critical standpoint, but Sinclair is a badass. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Like, I, I said to Bartek this, when, we, when he first watched it, I said, I think he could tell what my favorite moment is. And Bartek, you nailed it, which is when he punches Knight 2, and then he's like, ah, well, 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 looks like the pain is real for the <laughs> both of us, huh? And then he's, like, working out ways how he could do it again. Like... Angry Sinclair, multitasking Sinclair. I I think it's just like he's got a lot of complexities going on yeah. that people take for granted. I think people fall for his Zen nature. Sinclair has this like like you said, smiling, calm demeanor. But when you actually peel away that veneer that's actually quite thin, there's a lot of gears moving with this character. Mm. And this is what this episode is about. This is like opening up yeah. the character and looking at all of the gears moving. And there's a specific way that I really like how they show that. Mm. And it's just kind of built into the episode. And I didn't really think of it in this way. And I don't know if you guys all agree. Mm. Mm-hmm. But that kind of idea of him multitasking on and on working on all of these levels, you get in this episode, I think, more of an appreciation of him as a commander doing everything from the massive thing to the minute thing yeah, and everything in between. And that's just part of his day. And he deals with it and he does it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Rather than it being like, oh, this is the problem of the moment. It's just like, okay, mm. well, we've got to keep an eye out on this and we're doing that and we've got to manage this. Mm-hmm. Like, he is the director of the whole station and you really get that sense from him Mm. in this episode of like, he's having all of these responsibilities and all of these things are weighing on him. But he takes it in stride. Yeah. As well as like his past and how he's trying to just accept what happened as he knows it. And move on. And move on. Mm. But- after he gets like that little extra piece, he's like, I can't ignore this anymore. Yeah. Like, he really means it when he only really started to question it or question it in the moment that that Minbari said that to him. Yeah. Yeah. From then he was repressing it and he said it as much to Carolyn in that pilot movie. You touched upon something that's interesting here and I think it's something that I like about Sinclair is... He believes in the mission statement of Babylon 5 wholeheartedly. And he takes management very seriously. And that's what makes him different to Sheridan. When Sheridan first comes onto Babylon 5, he really does not want to do all of these tasks because he's a military, like he's a captain. He's a, he's an ex, Mm -hmm. he's an explorer. He's a military captain. Yeah. And then that, that is what Sinclair was to start with. Mm-hmm. And Knight 2 asks him, like, what changed? Yeah, what changed? You were going to be Admiral one day. L- and Like, you were following this very clear linear path that that your father had done, your grandfather had done, and it had gone all the way back, right? My 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 theory is, my, my perspective, and I'd love Barta to comment upon this, is Sinclair, after this incident at the war, 
was basically kicked down the ranks of importance because people suspected he had some collusion, yeah, which we see here. They didn't trust him anymore. While, Sin- while Sheridan is the exact opposite. He's a war-decorated hero. He's like, well, the few, if only people who have actually destroyed him in Bari's ship. And so I think like when Sinclair is offered this position... He takes it with utmost sincerity and respect because this is a break for him. While Sheridan is put there for a covert operation to begin with and mm-hmm. then is stuck there for a while. Even like season three, there's an episode where it opens up with Sheridan listening to like some trade union agreements and he's just like bored out of his mind. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just like, oh, fuck off with and this the, shit. And I love Sheridan I as shouldn't a, be dealing with this. And he grows into that. But I, I think Sinclair walked into it being like, this is my break and I'm going to do the best and show everyone that I'm better than they think I am. What but do you th- then I also question it because we see Sinclair at least a year into doing the job. Do you mm. think that that changes things, Bartek? Uh, the year being in the gathering? Yeah, like they've already been running the station for a, at least a year before we meet Sinclair. And this is then and first season's think, his second year. Yeah, that mm-hmm. maybe we just miss his teething period of dealing with the administration shit. Oh, it's possible. I, I can't say I really thought that far ahead, but definitely, um, I remember when I started season two, and you know Sheridan came in. Um, for for a, considering that the situation in real life was that they needed to change, you know, main actors and main characters, and somehow make the story still work. Um, they were pretty open about, like, you know, pointing out the fact that the main guy was gone. Mm-hmm. Like, there were characters asking Sheridan, like, oh, so how long are you going to, you know, be around for? You know, we there seems to be a history of people just, like, leaving Babylon 5. Um, so the show really does, uh, you know, kind of draw attention to the fact that Sheridan, uh, and by Sheridan I mean Sinclair, um, you know, really really owned this role mm. as being the, the commander of Babylon 5. So it's, yeah. Yeah, and they and they draw attention to those two characters, Sheridan and Sinclair. They're different characters. They mm-hmm. have different leadership styles. They have different interests as leaders. And that is what makes the two characters both very fun because you knew and Rachel knew that Sinclair only lasted that this season. And so when you did watch this big, big Sinclair episode, Rachel, you said it, it did affect you knowing that he wasn't going to be here by the end of the season. So this, the viewing of it kind of had a weird effect where you're like, well, this, this has to matter more, but Mm -hmm. like, I don't know how. And what, what could have been as well, because like when you're watching it for the first time, knowing that you're like, well. I wonder what they were originally planning and how they're going to change this. Or the big one, will this matter? Yeah. Will this matter? Will they just throw this out? Yeah. What about you, Bartek? When you were watching this episode, you you did know that that he left the show. Did you have these kind of lingering feelings? Well, uh, you're leaving out my very specific thing of what I thought I knew which was I forgot that he was only going to be the main character of season one. I was convinced for some reason that he was the main character in seasons one and two. Right. Um, so I, I was preparing myself for, oh, we're not even, 
you know, we're, we're barely over a quarter of the way through, uh, Sinclair main character time. Right. So I was very much holding on to all these details and hoping for more. And I do remember telling you that, like, mm. when I was finishing season one and just thinking about, like, oh, that, that last scene I saw with him, that, that didn't feel conclusive. And I, I have to, you know, let go of this already. And, and that was when I started to, like, you know, have that panic of, like, Oh God, I, I was holding on to all this. I know that he's going to be a guest role, you know, in, in the future, but like the, the, there hasn't been time for me to adjust to the fact that, you know, the, the focus of the show mm. is going to change. How can they give me answers to all of these questions not, when he's not the main character and it's anymore? Not just, yeah. And it's not just answers. It's resolution. Yeah. Rounding out his arc. What is it they don't want me to remember? Do you think that, like, when you revisit this and when you were just watching and you finally finished all the Sinclair stuff, were you satisfied? Did you feel like things paid off, including this episode? Did you feel like that panic that you were worrying about was actually defeated? Or do you think that it was in parts or such and such? How do you guys land? Um, maybe in part I would have, you know, still wanted a bit more, but when I did see the conclusion, I was very satisfied with it. It it was not only, you know, a a firm conclusion, but it was also, you know, in a satisfying duology of episodes. Yeah. Rachel? I think for me, just for my own peace of mind, mostly, I'm like, I don't want to imagine it another way. Yeah. This is what we were given. This is where everything lands. And it feels like it's a nice balance between chaotic and planned. Yeah. Of like, yes, life got in the way of the show being made. Mm. And then that had to alter things that were in the world of the show. But I choose to view it as like, well, that just makes it more authentic because it's just like, well, like, yeah, not everything is laid out really from the beginning and goes exactly from A to B. Some stuff had to get transferred into other areas. I like the way that the journey was adjusted as you go along it. I have had very complicated feelings with it because, like I said, I've stuck with that for this first season for three, maybe four years on its own. And there came a point where I I knew he wasn't going to be in the second season, third season. My parents said, don't worry, they wrap out his story. But I gained this perspective after some point of he's just a placeholder. And so when I did get the satisfaction of the resolution, I, I took it for granted. Again, took it for granted that we got a satisfying resolution for what was the main character, and I was excited, but I was more excited by we got an answer to the Babylon Four mystery. And then the other thing that makes this complicated is, until recent times, most if not all viewers didn't know why the actor left the show. Yeah, it was all you know, you know, lips moving and gossip and oh, the actor hated the show and he didn't want to be on it or they wanted a pretty boy or they wanted a more famous actor or he was a terrible actor and they had to get rid of him, whatever it was. Or the studio said wanted this. something else and all the ratings or whatever it is. So I also had that of 
blocking my accept my my appreciation for the fact that this stuff does matter. Yeah. Even outside of Sinclair's final resolution in the Babylon Squared episodes, the Babylon 4 episodes, stuff from his story, things that he did that affected other characters still progress throughout the show, even though he is physically not there to be there, to Mm -hmm. do those things. His impact, his legacy, and all of that stuff, the way he inspired his crew, linger throughout the show. There are those moments where... You, you, the show won't explicitly say, but you'll be reminded, that's right, Sinclair made that happen. That's right, Sinclair did that. Mm-hmm. And I've taken that in stride far more, and I'm happy when I watch an episode like this that it does get an answer, that there are things here. Because especially like in modern television yeah. shows, they get cancelled or they're embarrassed and they just erase it and they don't talk about it again or their Star Trek Discovery in which they have a short attention span and don't think about the past. The thing is this was a show from the 1990s. Bartek, you watched this in the matter of let's be generous and say four months, right? Mm -hmm. You got to see this answered and followed through upon relatively quickly. This was a show that was demanding you to play the long game for five whole years, and for this one, for three years. And that's, like, fucking ballsy. But the fact that it actually does pay off makes it feel like for people like us who are short-time view, like, people like you guys who are, like, short-time viewers in terms of you consumed it quickly, and for people like me who are longer ones, who had to wait and consume it for a longer period of time, mm-hmm. it's satisfying because it didn't waste our time. Nope. I walk away going, we can watch episodes like this and don't feel like they're this anomaly that don't make sense and that they're just spinning wheels and their time mm-hmm. wasters or wasted potential. Yep. I cherish these type of things because there are a lot of shows that I love and a lot of shows that I hate that drop the ball like that. And yep. Babylon 5, nine times out of ten, follows through. And that is something to, to really cherish here. What happened at the Battle of the Lion? Don't you want to know just for yourself? Don't you want to know? Yes. Yes, I do. Then go. Look. See. Did you consider what the antagonist was propositioning, like what was proposing here. Did you ever consider that Sinclair's um, missing time actually could have been something in which he was a double agent or a colluder or anything like that? I was like, oh, well, maybe... I was like, maybe if it was more clear that, like, the Mimbari... Maybe if we knew at that stage that the Mimbari did have telepaths. Well, we know all of the races except for the Nandu. Yeah, but we haven't seen a Mimbari telepath. So it's like not like you're like, oh, they must have. But we haven't seen them and seen their powers. So it's just like. At this stage, yeah. Oh, well, um, maybe he could have had a block put in, Mm. but you're just like, no. I was just like, no, no, no. Sinclair's Sinclair. And 
it would take a lot more than 24 hours to change who this man is. Didn't for Garibaldi. <laughs> no, because they manipulated what was already, already there. there. Yeah, yeah. And it's That's just true. like when the Mimbari took him, all he had was hatred. Mm-hmm. And that's not what he has now. And fear. Yeah. What about you, Bartek? Did you ever consider... Um, yes, I did, for sure. I thought that there was definitely something on a subconscious level that, that Delenn did to him. Because th- th- it's this weird thing of, like, as Rachel said earlier, Delenn is shady as fuck in season one. But she is a main character, and she has a lot of you know, kind of heartwarming, tender moments. Like in episode one, she's watching Duck Dodgers with Garibaldi. Um, there's the ending of The Gathering where they're having a conversation about like the nature of humanity uh, or humans. Um, so there was always this idea in my head of like, okay, Delenn's good, but there's something, you know, going on on the side um, that is, but whatever that something is, surely there is, you know, some sort of good intention there. And, uh, because there was such a strong emphasis on this kind of more personal relationship between uh, Sinclair and Delenn, you know, whether that was going to lead to romance or not, mm. I did think that perhaps there was something going on that would have uh, inclined Sinclair to, you know, get along with Delenn a bit more than just, like, you know, the passing of time or something like that. Something subconscious that he wouldn't have been aware mm. of. Yeah. I never assumed that it was the case uh, because he was our main character and I just didn't think they would do that. And also, like, the way his character is constructed and it being this mystery, I don't think from a writing standpoint, from a viewer standpoint, maybe from a writing standpoint, from a viewer standpoint, it would be satisfying that he investigates his own missing time just to, like, uncover himself that he is, in fact, a double agent. Like, that could be interesting, but I don't believe, I didn't believe that they would do that. Here. I never thought he was a double agent, just that there was something, you know. Yeah, that- and when it comes to the Delenn stuff, I think there's this interesting wrinkle where I think a part of it, at least for myself, is I'm inclined to think that she's a lot nicer because she's the spiritual lady of the show. And so <laughs> I'm inclined to be like, mm. well, she's sensible and nice and she must have good intentions, but... Throughout the show, even in episodes you just discussed or or moments, there have always been an undercut moment of, oh, but she has a secret sinister, or could be a secret and sinister agenda. She's on purposely misleading people, hiding people. In The Gathering, she plays her hand with her gravity rings, which never came back against Jakar, right? And, And stuff like that is what always was an underpinning of, like, there's something far more sinister here but the thing that makes you like her or at least fools me the uh the the religious spirituality thing and the connotations that come with that with how she's presented Mm -hmm. she's never presented as a zealot so i think of her as a good person is actually the answer (laughs) the actual answer is because she's a religious person, this is what the answer is. Because of her spirituality, this is why they surrendered the war. This is why they took, like, this is why they let Sinclair go and put Sinclair on the ship. And I've been guiding him because they believe him to be Valen. They know him to be Valen. They have evidence of it. Yeah. And they are aware, or and they're aware that the human spirit is the same as theirs. Mm-hmm. And I think. 
that is something really fun on the mm-hmm. on the watching of it and i was curious to know too were you guys satisfied with the actual answer of why they took sinclair and let him go and why they surrendered the war because that's what this this episode's all about is what happened on the line we get an answer to what happened on the line what just that you- he was taken no, no, but like in the show, like mm. as a whole show, oh, it- when you go back and watch this, this is interrogating that. And we don't get an answer. You guys were saying, I would have liked to have known the answer. We do get to find out the answer. Were you guys satisfied with that? With the answer about discovering the Mimbari souls inside of humans? Yeah. And I was. Yeah. And I where was that too. all leads? Yeah. I remember in season two when Lania sat down and explained it. I was pissed the fuck off. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because also, Sinclair wasn't there to hear yeah. this story. And I was like, what are you talking about? I completely think that this is stupid. They would end their war because they think we have their souls. I know uh-huh. they believe in this. I was so pissed off. And I remember the exact moment in which I was on board, which is when the character of Naroon heard about why they quit the <laughs> war, and he had my reaction. And I'm like, oh, good. This isn't a show in which the entire race of people believe this thing. There are people nah. who are like me who go, wait a moment. Are you telling me we ended a military conflict mm-hmm. because we think they're us? And that's when I flipped on it. Like, that exact moment, because mm-hmm. this show's really good... Uh, coming at f- things from all of these different perspectives that you and the characters may have when viewing the show and participating in the story. And so when I do go back and watch this episode, and I'm like, I'm very satisfied to know that, yeah, they let him go because they think their souls are in their bo- in the human bodies and they know this guy to be their religious, their, their Jesus figure. So they're going to craft him to be Valen because they know him to be Valen. Yeah. It's kind of rad. Commander, out of curiosity, do you remember anything from your experience? No. Sorry. Not a thing. I think it's time to do our actor's spotlight in which we talk about an actor that was in this episode, we talk about them as a performer within the episode, if we've seen them in anything else, all of this type of stuff. We're going to be talking about the actor of Night 2. Mm-hmm. Rachel, who's this person? Christopher Neem. Neem. And uh, have you guys uh, you know, seen him in anything else when you looked over his stuff? Is there anything of note for you, Bartek? I know there have been some B5 actors we've talked about. You look them up, you're like, they're, they're a voice in this thing I know, or they actually have appeared. There's actually been quite a few actors. I was surprised that y- you were like, ah, I've actually encountered this person in other things, and I may not have known it. Anything with mm, this guy? Yeah. No. So <laughs> nothing with him. Huh? Nothing. Like nothing at all. <laughs> you mean that you haven't seen It's All Relative? <laughs> I looked over his filmography like twice on two different websites. I could not find a single thing. That's such a shame because you'll all be happy to hear I know him from Star Trek episodes. Yeah. He was an Enterprise as our favorite type of thing, but it's like a Nazi general. Mm-hmm. Um, who would have guessed this blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy could play Ooh, a Nazi? Who would have seen it coming? But the most important thing to note down 
Mm-hmm. And this this blew my mind. Like I was sitting in my chair in the in the spare room, and I was just casually looking at his IMDb, being like, "Ah, I'm sure I'll see something." And then I saw he was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, and it was an episode where the Doctor gets trapped in a. He has to go inside of a holodeck program to save people, and Beowulf. it's um, a Beowulf story. And he's in that episode. And then I saw a name I'm familiar with, a face on IMDb I'm familiar with, as the character of Freya, number one from Babylon 5 is in that episode. The leader of the Mars Resistance group, who would later become the chief security person for the Interstellar Alliance. So that like that actress and this guy were both in the mm-hmm. same episode of Star Trek Voyager, and I was just so <laughs> ecstatic to see that. Like I love, I was like, oh, B five people in the same thing. Like mm-hmm. these two never interacted B five, but it was I, I get a kick out of that type of things. Like ooh, these little connections. Like ooh, these mm-hmm. two were in the same little project. It was quite neat. But outside of that, yeah. not that much. He's done a mix of TV and film, mostly <laughs> TV, and a lot of sci-fi scattered throughout the oh, decades. Yeah, he's been like a villain in like a gajillion <laughs> yeah. sci-fi things. He was a re- he was born in 1947. I thought you were going to say in England. I was like, yeah, English obviously. actor. <laughs> he's currently got 101 <laughs> credits, and his first credit was No Blades of Grass. Which was it an English came, thing? Out, came out in 1970. Cool, cool. And I uh, liked that he was in one-off episodes of various sitcoms. Or um, I can't imagine him in a sitcom. Like, apparent- just he looks like a villain. <laughs> sitcoms <laughs> slash soaps because he was in an episode of Benson. Oh, and that's a, that's in I believe it was a few episodes of Days of Our Lives. Oh, now that I could, I can see this guy's a soap opera. And there is a connection to a film that you have done. Oh, on the pond. On the spit and polish. Oh, what one? Oh, that's mine. That's yeah. yours. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a film that you have done. Oh. But it's connected to the world of a movie that you have done. Oh, I'm scared now. Huh? So it's from Unappreciated Masterpieces. Which is our show where we did commentary tracks, yeah. Stage. So what was the what was this? I'm excited. I'm I'm keen. So he was in the film Boris and Natasha as Fearless Leader. <gasps> oh yeah, I did see that. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Rocky Not that I've seen it, but I I I, yeah, I read that. He was yeah. in Rocky but, but my, my, my my big question is, was he the first method actor? <laughs> To play a you know that was De Niro. You know it was De Niro. Also, it was a TV movie, Ryan, so we wouldn't have done so it. So for a TV movie, was he the first method actor to play a cartoon? <laughs> that, that, probably so. I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, you still haven't figured it out? That's like, I know what it means literally. <laughs> what does it look? I can't imagine Marlon Brando doing it. So, what did we think of this guy in this episode? Because the most interesting thing to note down was this was originally written for Walter Koenig to play, but he had a heart attack. I mentioned this in the previous episode. So, he couldn't play it, and then they gave him the role of Mr. Bester instead. Um, What did we think of this guy, though? What did we think of his performance? He's like the main guy uh, facing off against Sinclair, he has to do a lot of the heavy lifting as well. What did you think of this guy, Bartek? Yeah, I, again, having rewatched it uh, and comparing it to, like, the later interrogation episodes, it was very different. 
but the actor still very much had this like cold demeanor about him, which was really cool to see. Because the other ones, uh, I guess they had a bit more like you know psychological expertise going on. This character, you know, he he had the the performance. Mm. Yeah, I love this guy's performance. Yeah, he rocks it for me. This guy has to carry off some lines that in anyone else's hands could fail. There are so many lines he spouts off here, like that big, that like when all the lights are turning off and he's like, you could be in heaven, you could be in hell, <laughs> you could be blah. And he's like, the only thing that's true is that you're locked in here with me. And I, I was I was fist pumping when he was doing that because I was like, this guy's fucking bringing the cheese. And sometimes that's good. You need... Someone to be campy. And this guy was very camp, but in a good way. Did I ever find him menacing? No. I found him enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that can be a good thing, because a boring villain is very bad. And B5 is filled with many of them. Yeah. But this guy is one of the mo- one of the first memorable villains, along with Mister Bester and the Soul Hunter, because there's this actor standing there delivering these lines with this utmost like sincerity and energy. I really noticed that he did something. I was like, why is he doing this? He would be breathing like he's running out, like he was running out of breath. Mm. Like like when he was talking, he was like, <sighs> and I was like, why is he? doing that and then i realized it's because his character is doing two things at once like he is operating and sorting out the machine along with his fellow knight in Mm -hmm. our world and he's operating inside the mental state as well and so i took it like it's kind of like physically taxing on him which I found quite interesting and yeah. performance wise I like a I like that weird little touch also it just the shakiness of his breathing made him unsettling in some ways just like this isn't right and and it added to this panicked nature of these two knights because we said this they aren't as um as uh, as impactful as a uh, as a uh, um professional as the other interrogators we will see these guys have come aboard the ship they've got a time limit there's people looking for the commander and they don't actually seem like they're professional interrogators no they just seem like they really want to know the answer and so the shakiness in this actor's breath really delivered this without the dialogue having to do the work. Yeah, I I agree. I really enjoy the performance, even though he's never menacing to me. Yeah. It's because he's never a physical threat to Sinclair. I think that that's part of it. For me, you mean he gets his ass kicked by Sinclair? Yeah, like, <laughs> no, his stomach punched. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're it's right. It's only um, and, and then his mind fucking pulverized. What can he make Sinclair do to himself? Mm. That's the question that this character revolves around. It's not a oh my, what is he gonna do? Like they try, they cheese it up, but it's like this might kill him. Or, yeah. When, like, Night 2 himself is like, oh, even if you die. Yeah, and I, I also appreciate acting-wise, you do see a very subtle, at least I do, I don't know if you guys do as well, but we could talk about it, a subtle flip in his um 
his intensity once he starts to realize that Sinclair doesn't know. Yeah. And he starts to, like I say, play it more like he's this guide character. And I like the smooth transition performance-wise from doing that because he's still clearly an antagonistic character. But now he, like the audience, is actually invested in the answer. And he wants Sinclair to genuinely be invested, whether it's for a sinister reason like you bestow, Rachel, or whether it's for a more sincere reason like I do in terms of like, I just want this. This guy seems like a victim too. I just want to yeah. know. Um, like, yeah, that kind of stuff is interesting. Uh, anything you want to say about uh, this guy's performance, Bartek? Anything you kind of noticed or appreciated or, or didn't like? Um, I'm starting to realize why you didn't like his last line, Ryan. Yeah. It's because he wasn't doing the heavy breathing. So obviously mm. he wasn't inside. He wasn't inside. That's it. It's, Bartek it's like it. they... They weren't trying to hide it, so it's like, well, no. Yeah, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. This is the author looking for a button for the scene. Maybe you're still inside. I I apologize for that. It, it, it's a tad overdone, shall we say. Um, I need something to go out with. Uh, I think uh, unless anything else wants to be said here, I think we can... Uh... Move on to the next episode of Babylon 5. On the next Babylon 5. You guys are talking about episode 9, Deathwalker. Extradite her for trial. (laughs) Better yet, some say kill her on the spot. Passions run high with the arrival of the war criminal known as Deathwalker. She's... She's bio... Oh, yeah, sorry. She's biochemist Jadul. Sarah Douglas, whose discovery of an immortality potion came via sadistic experimentation of Narns and other aliens. Yeah, that's right. There was an immortality potion at one point, wasn't there? (laughs) The the Volon said we weren't ready for it yet. Yeah. We haven't said two important words. Oh, do you give this episode a yum? Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Where do you land, Bartek? Yum being bad or yum, yum being good? Well, mm, 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 I give it a yum yum. Yum yum. Mm, you know what? I've mm-hmm. got some of this episode still on my lips. Mm-hmm. It's a yum yum from me too. Mm-hmm. Yum yum. But what about this? Are you giving it a yum yum? Yeah, I said yum yum. I just want to clarify. Yum yum. Yeah, and Ryan, are you giving it a yum yum? I, I give it a yum yum for good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This yeah, is just so I have more excuses to keep using the hard cut <laughs> saying yum yum after okay. we give it. Yum yum. I'm trying to move on again. <laughs> Choo choo. Oh, one thing though. Yeah. I give it a yum yum. <laughs> <laughs> yum yum. I am keen. Are you keen on Deathwalker, Ryan? I don't want to give too much away, but this particular episode, Deathwalker, does have one of the most bizarre. What the fuck fucking crazy B plots out there that is Ambassador Kosh wants to hang out with Talia Winters and his Yeah, good, just and his what? good and his good friend Mr. Abbott and drink Jovian sunspots yeah. and talk nonsense. Well, I'm looking Kosh forward to that. Kosh doesn't drink the sunspots. No 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 he he's there Abbott for the, does. He's there for the hour of scampering. Yeah. Yes. I'm looking forward to that fucking so, B plot. Like 
That's it really, look, there's a really sharp increase in the Kosh action next episode. I know, Bartek's weeping because Kosh was always one of your favourite characters. Bartek would come to me week to week telling me I didn't see Kosh or, oh, I got some Kosh action. And then I said to you, Bartek, at one point, there's going to be an episode where he does so much stuff that somebody remarks, he's been a busy boy today. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Death he, yeah. Yes. Third best yes, character. Third best. Mm-hmm. And who's the second? <laughs> Come on, Ryan, you know who it is. Tell I had a nickname for him. <laughs> tell us. Tell us the audience. <laughs> My bug man. Negrath. Everyone loves Listen, listen, Kosh, listen. Kosh, Negrath, then... Sinclair. Sinclair. From three to one, yeah. yeah. Listen, there is a video on YouTube called R.I.P. Negrath. <laughs> when I found it, when I found that video, it had about 75 views. When I watched it again the other day, it had about 76 and that's bullshit because it should be at least 90 considering how many times I've watched it. But maybe maybe it's just because you've watched it too many times my, in one day. My favourite fact is Bartek waited till like the end of the show to watch it because he's like, I don't want to get spoiled. <laughs> and I had that description in my head the whole time because it ends with rest easy, King. <laughs> and, then, and then you watched it and it's like the shitty shit post. It's not shitty, it's sad. (laughs) Didn't you hear the guy crying? (laughs) Many complications. Price high. I'll pay for it. It's been a blast talking B5. You can find our baby boy Bartek over at the Spit and Polish Presents podcast. Bartek, where can people find that podcast? Oh, I can just... You know, copy paste what I say in our episodes. <clears throat> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Spit and Polish Presents. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Facebook page, uh, Spit and Polish <laughs> Presents. Also, you can email me at spitandpolished at gmail dot com, and you can rate and review me on all the podcasters that allow it. <laughs> yeah, and we're the exact same. We're on all of those social medias: the Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, whatever. Yum we, yum pod. Yum yum, yum pod. podcast. We uh, have an email as well in which you can email us over your thoughts, questions, queries, concerns, or whatever you feel like at yumyumpod at gmail.com. You should rate and review us. Uh, Unfortunately, last I checked, I went onto uh, Apple Podcasts, I went onto Podchaser, Mm -hmm. I went onto iHeartRadio, I went onto the Spanish streaming site. You you there's were hunting been, for them. There's been no change to their rating systems. They still go by five star rules. They haven't changed it to the yum or yum yum rules. And I've written letters. I sent pigeons. Um, they didn't have letters. I just sent them, <laughs> and they haven't changed it. So you should make that happen by giving us what their equivalent of yum yum is, which is five star reviews, and make sure to put in there in some way, shape, or form, change the ratings to yum or yum yum or hashtag. Change the rating uh, to yum or yum yum. Uh, yeah, we have our Patreon as well, in which we provide extra content for money, and you can support us on there. Mm-hmm. We have uh, discussions of Star Trek movies, the best and worst rated episodes of Star Trek, and we give our general thoughts on uh, other pieces of media, movies, TV shows, video games, podcasts. I mean, way back in the day before we really confirmed in our brains and said, when Star Trek Discovery is done, what do we move on to? We actually did two 
episodes on Babylon 5 because there's just too much to talk about. So you can go back in time and hear us try to like condense our thoughts down into two one-hour like episodes if you really want. Bartek, thanks so much for coming on. I'm glad that you, you joined us here. And I'm glad that you, you just checked out Babylon 5. Like As someone who's a fan of the show and many people will have this and experience. And years of personally trying to peer pressure him into watching it. Subtle peer pressure pressure i didn't hand him the dvd and say watch it and then and then he thumped it and like do not thump the 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 dvd of babylon 5 it's sacrilegious uh you know it's just as a fan of show many people listening will know this it's always just nice when somebody actually just watches the show because it is a very (laughs) underseen you want to share it because you love it so much i want to share the word of babylon 5 uh but thanks ryan Hmm? bartek Good evening to you. Oh, good evening to you, Rachel. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, I've already gotten my uh, revenge seat against Ryan. He's going to watch Nichijou, so look forward to Yum Yum Nichijou. Good eating to you all.